All right. Hello and welcome to the third podcast of the uh, Tonic 7, brought to you live from the Cool Cats at Debo Station. On board this week, we have the same uh, eclectic cast of characters as usual, uh, as well as our special guest, Nate Epps, who writes A Roll of the Dice on Substack. And also Doc is joining us for the first time. So welcome, Doc. Uh, great. Okay, so this week's topic will be the uh, paranormal, UFOs, you know, spooks and goblins, big hairy dudes in the woods, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And I thought an interesting way to kick things off might be to to go around the room and just have everyone give their definition of the word paranormal, uh, because I think it's a tricky word. And I personally think it has a lot of problems with it. Um, So anyway, given that he wrote such an excellent piece about uh, paranormal phenomenon. Why don't we start things off with Luke's thoughts on the subject? Luke? Yeah, so um, the definition is actually harder than it seems, right? But I think what uh, people usually understand when they're talking about the paranormal is um, like things that, you know, science can't explain kind of thing, right? I mean, it's kind of a dodgy definition, but I think that's uh, what kind of comes to mind. Um, and uh, it's usually things like uh, telepathy, um, psychokinesis, like, you know, all that kind of stuff that uh, is almost can sometimes seem like magic almost. And sometimes it's it's relatively minor, you know, like uh, minor te- telepathic phenomenon. And yeah, and then there's the whole UFO business that also gets uh, put in that category sometimes um and even weirder things like bigfoot and poltergeist and ghosts and uh, spirit communication and and all that uh but these are also very different things right so um uh, to my mind uh, the uh, the the question is more um like uh this idea is any of that uh, real or, or that's kind of like the question that most people I think have in mind right it's not necessarily getting into the the, the details of uf- ufology and and Bigfoot research or whatever but it's like is all of that crap you know or is uh, some of that um, actually real and and what's going on so um, yeah but before we get to that I, I'll pass the stuff um, Harrison I think you you are also well-versed in the the topic so maybe you can go next yeah okay i'll I'll give some thoughts but first i was curious so i just looked on uh my favorite source of accurate information wikipedia just to see if i could get a quick history of the term because i i realized i hadn't i wasn't i actually don't know like um you know when did that word originate um so apparently the term paranormal has existed in the english language since at least 1920 The word consists of two parts, para and normal. The definition implies that the scientific explanation of the world around us is normal, and anything that is above, beyond, or contrary to that is para, paranormal. So like beside normal or not quite normal. And in it, so it's got some similarities to the word like supernatural. So the word supernatural is that there's the there's natural phenomena, there's the natural world, and then the implication is that there are things super or you know above or more than normal, um, and of course, so that will then depend on what how we define normal and natural. So 
there are I'm a fan of David Ray Griffin, philosopher, um, also political commentator, died a year, about a year ago, I think. And he has a, a bunch of books on the supernatural, and he doesn't like the word supernatural. Um, but then again, there's another guy like Chris Langan who likes the word supernatural. It all comes down to how you define natural. So the people who like the, like the word supernatural, they might, there are two positions. I, either they are um, either they believe in a transcendent world like where God is. So a lot of like theologians and theists are supernaturalists in, the th in, the, in that they think in a kind of Cartesian sense that there is a, a natural world and then in some other world is God and the supernatural. So God kind of likes, like uh, not necessarily supervenes, but actually, actually is transcendent to the world and external to the world and then influences the world. So when you have a miracle or something that is a supernatural intervention, the, the normal laws of the, the physical world get overridden, overwritten and this supernatural like injection kind of like puts a pause on um, like the causal, the causal network of reality. And then um, like uh, another person who's more of a like who's less of a theist in that sense, less of a dualist, would say, okay, well, supernatural just means that the, some, like um, a higher law above the, you know, the, the laws that, that, that we see. So maybe above physics, above chemistry, above psychology, but that the, it's still part of, um, well, so that's supernatural. And then someone else might say, well, it's all natural. If it's all part of reality, if, it's, if consciousness is a part of reality, then there's nothing supernatural about it. It's all just natural phenomenon. So we should just not use the terms. Like it's not paranormal or it's not supernatural. It's just natural and normal, but there are certain situations in which these things um, take place. So I guess that's kind of a, a pedantic way of looking at it. But I, I personally, you know, so me, I don't really care what the word is as long as I kind of understand how I'm thinking of or how the person is thinking of normality and, and the, the natural world. So I'll leave it there. So I'll jump in because um, my own thoughts are very similar. Uh, so I, I'm something of a natural absolutist in the sense that I do not think that there is anything outside of nature. So when I hear words like unnatural or supernatural or related words like paranormal uh, that kind of suggest that there's a natural world and then there is stuff that is outside of it. Um, which is either, you know, totally fantasy, imaginary, not real, or uh, somehow violates the laws of reality. I, I think, no. Uh, if it exists, then it is part of nature. So paranormal in that sense would simply be a sort of um, catch-all category into which to throw all of the things that we do not yet understand about nature. And there are, you know, if you look in history, leaving aside phenomena just sigh and, you know, ghosts or UFOs or anything like that, you can find many examples of phenomena that were considered to be entirely, you know, mythical or imaginary or old wives' tales um, that later turned out to be entirely true. So, you know, a well-known example is something like penicillin, where a doctor said for the longest time that, oh, putting moldy bread on a wound, this is an old wives' tale, it's a superstition, there's nothing to it. And then it turns out, oh, no, there's this antibacterial property to the mold that grows on the bread, which then 
forms the basis for an entire branch of uh, pharmaceutical medication. Um, meteorites. For a long time, it was the, the idea that stones could fall from the sky. I mean, how the hell could there be stones in the sky? That's nuts. You know, there's nothing to hold them up up there. So that was thought to be uh, an old peasant superstition until they started to be located and we understood how it all worked. Um, in a, a very recent example that I've always found quite fascinating is um, <laughs> elves and sprites and so on, by which I do not mean uh, the little people. Uh, I mean the electromagnetic phenomenon of lightning that shoots up from the clouds into space. And for some decades, I think, uh, you know, pilots all knew about this because they'd seen it. But they didn't talk about it because according to sort of textbook meteorology, lightning was something that went from the clouds down to the ground, not something that went from the clouds up into space. So if they talked about this, they would be considered nuts. And if your sanity is called into question as a pilot, they will ground you, take away your pilot's license, there goes your career. So this was something that they talked about with each other because they'd all seen it, but they would never mention it to anyone outside of like their, their sort of community. And that, that lasted right up until I think the 1990s when a meteorologist actually sort of heard about this and went, well, that sounds really interesting. And he started looking into it with a kind of an open mind, talking to the pilots, getting them to actually open up about this. And, you know, now, like, you know, this is something which is actually studied, which is photographed, which is, you know, we even uh, have, have found um, signs of these discharges reaching all the way up into orbit. It's, it's become part of natural science. Uh, and, and by all of those sorts of arguments, I don't mean to imply that something like UFOs, for instance, will turn out to be some kind of electromagnetic phenomenon in the atmosphere, although that is one of the possibilities. Uh, what I mean is that by implying, as the word does, that um, these things that we can't yet explain are simply imaginary or, or some, uh, due to some kind of faulty wiring in, in the heads of humans, um, we sort of like block off an aspect of the natural world that we should actually, you know, look at with a more open mind because it would, there might be something there. And that then expands our understanding of reality a little bit rather than just closing it off. Yeah, I could jump in after that. I think pretty much I'm in total agreement with John in the sense that you know, it's either there, it's real, or it's not. It's real, it's part of nature. It's not, it's just weird crap people make up. Um, I think one of the downsides of the word is that people tend to use it the same way they use like conspiracy theory to mean something that's obviously wrong and we shouldn't even be considering as opposed to something that's weird, but, you know, maybe there's something there. Maybe, it's, you know, maybe people are just wrong or not, but it's something that you actually can question. I think if you wanted to salvage the term, you could make a useful distinction if you were, if you're imagining kind of like a multiple universe or multiple worlds theory, right? Where there's like our universe, our world with our natural rules. And then there's some other one, some spirit realm or whatever, that's a separate universe. Things aren't supposed to be able to cross easily. It has its own rules. They're completely separate. You know, our nature doesn't work there, vice versa. But sometimes things get flicked back and forth. Right. So 
you know, ooh, it's a little spooky ghost. It's supernatural because it's not supposed to be part of this world. It's supposed to be over there, and therefore it is, you know, wrong, right? It is alien to our world. Then again, things like aliens shouldn't be because they exist naturally in the universe. If they're in here, they're following all our own rules, etc. Right? Uh, slip into forty you... for a second. You know, the aliens, if they have to slip over to the warp to get here, they go into the supernatural realm and come back, right? And of course, from the demons of the warp, we're the supernatural realm if we are going over there. And so you kind of have that sort of, you have to have that hard divide, though. Otherwise, it's not really worth considering in a way, because again, like John said, it's either part of our world that follows the rules and everything else. Maybe we don't understand the rules, and it's going to show us that there's different rules than what we thought. but it's still part of it. There's no real reason to call it supernatural. Um, and I'm just, especially when you think of things like, you know, especially like aliens, well, clearly that's not supernatural. Things like, um, oh, what do they call it? Not cryptids? They, the mm -hmm. super secret animals that nobody can find, right? Cryptids. Yeah. Cryptids, yeah. You know, maybe, you know, animals are not supernatural. They're things. Everybody thought the platypus was a uh, hoax for like 50 years. You know, things like that, you know, they're there, they're not. It's not really paranormal, it's just whether or not it is. So, and conversely, there's there's things that people thought were real, like uh, Piltdown Man, for yeah. decades, that turned out to be total hoaxes. Um, did you make that prop just for this? Yeah, that's what I was doing while Mark was uh, you know, exposed <laughs> for a few minutes. I was carving I was gonna... that out, and I figured I'd just have him dancing around the... <laughs> So Dan, where are you on yeah. paranormal? Ah, uh, so paranormal. I mean, I guess it's um, it seems like you know since the Enlightenment, we've had this sort of mental model as a culture. Well, whether or not like technical people have this, but the popular kind of understanding of it seems to be this mental model where nature is not conscious; it's more like a machine that just kind of operates according to these deterministic laws and um, you know, so, and that consciousness is like this emergent property of matter or, or physical matter, physical energy, you know, to, um, to where consciousness is like subsidiary and operates in these very kind of fixed and constrained ways. And, uh, to my own take, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I don't think there's any way to prove one way or the other, but, uh, I think consciousness is either prior to matter slash physical energy or it's co-eternal with it you know i don't think i mean whether it's within the mind of god or whatever you want to call it the universe itself being conscious i don't know but um you know so so i think that is, we had this very incomplete mental model as a culture of how the the world works and what kind of creatures we are and how we operate within it and uh so basically like anything that doesn't neatly map onto that mental model kind of gets labeled paranormal and that could be woo woo stuff like uh you know new age healing crystals and things like that or it could be stuff that you know is, is more it seems to be very much be a part of reality but just a part of reality that we don't understand uh you know so i mean in my own case i think i've had not many but a few sort of paranormal-ish experiences uh 
mostly not dramatic, although there was one that, uh, you know, which I was driving and approaching an intersection and I was daydreaming about something and this kind of thought like impressed itself. That's the best way I can describe it on me that someone's going to run that light, you know, and so I was more out of curiosity than anything. I was just kind of, it kind of surprised me. So I slowed down and sure enough, somebody ran through the light really fast. And there's just speaking from a, going back to that deterministic mental model of the universe. I don't think there's any way I could have like, that wasn't something that was I, I, within the normal. So I guess paranormal. Right. But then a, a more prosaic or, or everyday example of this would be a thing that we've all had where you feel like there's somebody like you're being watched almost, even if you don't form the thought, it's like you turn around and sure enough, somebody's looking at you, you know, or an animal even is, is looking at you. And it's, it, it could be 180 degrees, you know, behind you. So it's not like you could catch sight of it in your peripheral vision. And yet there's this sixth sense that people have that you're being watched. And so it's kind of like, well, what is that? You know, and I, I don't, it, going to what John said, I, don't, I think it's not necessarily anything magical. It's just like whatever our conscious minds are able to piece together of, a, of a, I guess, a representation of what, quote reality is it obviously leaves some stuff out and so you know it seems like that's what falls in the paranormal bucket along with all the marianne williamson woo woo stuff that you know <laughs> whatever that's worth but that's my non-answer of an answer and you keep crystals in your dashboard for uh, traffic control purposes like that well i should start that maybe i won't <laughs> have to rely on those intuitions because i haven't always gotten them i mean there have been times like i've gotten in an accident you know and it wasn't warned ahead of time oh somebody's gonna plow into you at this red light you know but uh i don't know it's one of those things like that that particular event is like totally a one-off thing like it hasn't it's i don't even understand how that worked and i haven't you know i'm kind of theistic or lean that way and so I, i take it you know it's and this is one of the things i think with with uh religious answers that's tricky is because people will take an event like that and say oh this is proof of the existence of a high, of god or but they they don't just say like this is proof of something outside of our materialist model of how things work they'll go beyond that to the you know to say this is proof of the existence of god and it was jesus that particular definition of the god and all these sort of theological tenets that are bootstrapped onto that you know that well they go too way too far you know there's yeah there's something that happens and it's like okay we don't know what this is but then it, it it's consistent with a variety of different conceptions of god and so it's you, you know a lot of times when you in the apologetics sphere you'll see people make these type of arguments they'll point out to some anomaly that we can't explain or that seems like by its nature is inexplicable given the materialist model and then from there say okay now we've established there's this gap here's well here's the all the theological baggage that i wish to bring in and can't prove you know and in in fact itself contains a lot of anomalies that can't be resolved you know not not to say there's anything wrong with believing in god but just the way these type of arguments work i just i just want to jump in and build on some of the things you said there very quickly uh before we go around and complete um so you know, you're talking about like, you know, things that we don't understand that uh, still seem to work, right? 
Um, and I think there is a sort of bias in the modern mindset that you need to understand something first before you can use it, uh, which like if you don't have a scientific explanation for a phenomenon, then therefore it doesn't exist and you can't use it, right? And, you know, if you think about it this for a few seconds, like this is kind of silly. Like um, you, I almost guarantee, have no idea how your body works, right? Like you go and move your arm. Like, do you know exactly how that happened? You know, at what level of detail do you understand how that happened? Uh, and yet your arm moved, right? Um, from examples of technology, you can look at steam engines. The steam engine technology predated thermodynamics by almost a century, I think. Um, and you can find example after example of this. Uh, so, you know, if you take something like, you know, crystal healing or whatever, or, or Reiki, stuff like this. Now, I mean, you know, I've never tried to heal myself with a crystal. I have no idea what, if it works. I'm skeptical as I'm skeptical of most things. Uh Maybe there's something to it and we just haven't developed the understanding yet. Um, but it happens very frequently in human history um, that uh, the use of something in the natural world is sort of intuitively figured out just through a purely empirical process of, of trial and error and a, maybe a little bit of inspiration um, long before we developed that sort of detailed theoretical understanding. Herbal medicine, another example, right? You know, traditional societies have all of these plant medicines that they figured out how to use long before modern botany and molecular biology and pharmacology and all of that kind of, you know, figured out what the active ingredients were and so on. Um, so yeah, that was just, I just wanted to, to build on that point because I think it's relevant to the subject of the paranormal in general. Yeah, just to jump in to add something to Mark or Dan's point as well is uh, people would give, you know, say, oh, well, Jesus told me somebody was going to run a red light. Um, but he never quite explained why he was out to coffee when you got in your other accident. You're like, that was a good accident to have. You should have had that one. But the other one knew that that's, you know what I mean? Like, it's sort of like, okay, but this explanation should probably start looking at both of them. You know, why did, why was this accident one not to get in, but this one was? And, you know, I've noticed that's, People are always very silent on those sorts of issues, which is a little questionable whenever they want to say, well, everything's, you know, we have this totalizing idea of how things work, but it doesn't address certain things. But mm -hmm. yeah, we'll touch on like George, George Carlin talking about Christian athletes that always praise Jesus when they win, never mention his name when they lose. There's no like, yeah, the good Lord made me drop the ball in the end zone. Exactly, yeah. They don't, I'm sure they're not going back to a locker room saying, we should have prayed harder. Come on, guys. Second, yeah, and it's, second. And block. it's weird because when they say that, like what they're really almost saying is that there's no such thing as free will. It's almost like some kind of a Calvinistic um, metaphor for something that's not really happening. Like they're, they're, they're basically saying that they're not agents of fate, which is a strange way of putting it, I think, even in a religious context. I think it even becomes stranger in that context. Yeah. But do you sorry, think there's you... do you think there's something with that where uh you know with the Calvinist you know sort of way where people almost like uh, I don't know like they're afraid that they'll not get chosen by God or you know not be of the elect if they don't praise God for every good thing and, and figure out a way to make any bad thing somehow a blessing so it's like you know because it, it almost seems like there's a defense uh, like a defensive or I don't know like if a, a, 
if I don't take every opportunity to, you know, after a football game, acknowledge, you know, everything good was God and everything bad was, uh, well, I don't know. God works. I I feel like there's a a psychological utility there, right? You know, if you, it, it, it maintains a certain level of humility. Like if you ascribe to God or Jesus or whatever, um, the good things that happened in your life, rather than taking credit for them themselves, you sort of avoid having this prideful attitude towards things. And at the same time, if when things go wrong, you sort of turn that inwards and you say, you know, what did I do wrong? Uh, then you're point. not, you're not blaming the world for the bad things that happen in your life. And like, you know, whether, whether this is, reflective of reality um is you know a kind of a different question because with anything that happens there's going to be elements that are under your control and elements that aren't uh but um just just psychologically emotionally i can see that being really adaptive but i say I yeah and i agree gonna, oh good oh, so sorry i was gonna say if i was gonna put on the uh, cynical economist hat I'd say that there's very much a social signaling aspect going. Because on the one hand, you know, you said you don't want to sound prideful. You don't want to say, well, yeah, obviously we were the best, so we were going to win. These guys suck. What the hell, guys? You know, duh. You know, we won because we were great. So you want to say, oh, well, it wasn't just me. You know, we got lucky. But nobody likes it whenever you say you get lucky, right? That makes it sound like you didn't deserve it. And so you kind of want to lower that a little bit, lest somebody says, well, were you going to give some of your prize winnings to the other guy then? Because you didn't deserve it? No, no, we're not going to do that. But if you say, well, you know, God, you know, I thank God for helping us out and doing this, people aren't going to gainsay God, right? So that's that's a really safe way to say, you know, hey, it wasn't just me. Look, I'm being humble. You know, we got we got lucky, but not lucky because you're not allowed to be lucky. You have to have merit. And so, well, God wanted us. And hey, if God says we have merit, we're good, right? Like, you know, no one's going to back that up. I think a lot of those kind of weird social rituals you see like that kind of circle around that situation because i'm one thing i've noticed that you see a lot of people saying oh well you know i want to thank god and jesus not just they don't strike you as the most religious people when you see what they get up to outside of the stadium so you know it's just like wow, i think i think often god those god. who are like <laughs> most open about it right though those are like most boasting about their faith and how uh, humble they are i mean that's often not a good sign i mean these are the uh, kinds of holier than though people you know that we all can't stand you're the best of <laughs> they're just terrible um yeah. but you know but uh if you, if you keep it inside more um uh, you know as a kind of like a, a rule for yourself you know that let's say you own a big house you know and then uh you don't go around tell everybody oh you don't deserve it you know but uh you just say to yourself you know yeah i mean that's maybe not entirely me and i'm kind of responsible you know for i have a kind of a stewardship you know because it somehow it's god that entrusted it to me. you know that sort of thing i mean it can be psychologically healthy right mm-hmm. um, but but you usually don't see that you know because people uh don't tell you you know who think like that you know they're not they're not they don't boast about that kind of stuff exactly yeah yeah well i think you know all these social phenomenon is it's very complicated and for every individual person there's you know there's some there's some confluence of these factors at play but i definitely uh see it you know to be charitable i see it the way that that john sees it in terms of performance to look at all of your natural gifts and say hey you know whenever i succeed it's because of my natural gifts it it allows you to have that 
humility. Um, and then not doing that when you uh, fail is very important because you have to have that internal locus of control if you want to succeed. You know, so when you fail, you want to take responsibility of that because you do have free will and you do have the ability to work hard in order to succeed. And so it's all about the framing and it, it gets really recursive if you try and be very precise about it. But for most people, it's a lot more straightforward to be like, when I win, hey, that's because of God or because of nature, because of my gifts. When I lose, I could have I could have worked harder. And that motivates you to, to work harder. Um, I think it's an elegant way of, of framing things. Um, and, and this is related to the, to the paranormal and supernatural thing, frankly. Um, it's how, how does framing it make sense to you? Ultimately, for a lot of people, it's an aesthetic choice. Um, but for others, there are these real consequences, and, and everybody's kind of touched on this. And I'll, I'll talk about it in terms of medicine to make it more granular and in, in, in specific because in medicine everybody knows the placebo effect is huge that these non-specific effects are a lot of times the majority of the effect size for a lot of treatments especially in physical therapy but to a large extent in other fields as well and when you have that as a phenomenon there's so much flex where if the patient believes and something sounds like it's going to be effective. And the more elaborate the story is and the more uh, fervently they believe and they buy into what's happening, the greater that effect is. And that applies whether or not there's a, a well-understood mechanism by which it works or not. You know, Because if there is a mechanism by which it works, that's going to be a component of the effect size. But there's always this component of non-specific effects and it goes both ways or if the patient doesn't believe in it say if you take somebody that's like a staunch materialist and you try and explain to them how the meridian lines and like eastern medicine and how like you're going to take the needle and it's going to affect the energy pathways um, that treatment will not be as successful for that person versus somebody that very uh, fervently believes in eastern medicine like i've i've seen um you know, I've seen these dramatic results myself. Um, and now there, there are potential mechanisms for why sticking an acupuncture needle in somebody can modulate pain and, and do certain things. But they're, they're complex because, you know, John mentioned, you know, moving your arm, right? And like, what are, the, what are the pathways? Like, I'd have to review my neuroscience a little bit, but you know, at one time I could trace the exact pathways from, you know, the, the uh, precentral gyrus to down, you know, what, what pathways they, they fire and then terminate at the uh, alpha motor neuron, yada, yada, yada. Ah, uh -huh, but is that, uh, is that sufficient? You know, do you know that, do you know what the level of detail of the action potentials moving across the uh, synapses I, I, and, I used to, and the, yeah. uh, the uh, the ion channels and the individual cells of the individual and uh, you know it's a, you yeah. know you can just it's it's very recursively detailed you might say yeah. in terms of and then you know, yeah and then the the but chemical path, physics. but pathways from what though but pathways leading from what these pathways branch from somewhere yeah Correct? and then yeah, then you're talking about consciousness which is you know we we frankly can't get into that level of detail because we don't uh, we don't understand it at that level um, but 
really the only point that I'm trying to make is that if you're trying to help people, if you're trying to understand reality and apply it, if you conceive of certain things outside of nature and say, you know what, those things are just impossible to understand, then you're, you're handicapping yourself a little bit. Um, because there's, I think that you, you don't know what we're going to be able to understand. If you take for granted that everything that exists, exists in nature, and that you should always try and figure it out. You should always try be trying to come up with hypotheses and um, seeing how those work over time in order to build that map of reality. And I think when people uh, say, you know what, that's just too strange. There's just like that, that means that it's like that is impossible to understand. Don't even bother trying. That's like on a whole nother plane. Um, I don't think that that's uh, helpful for me, you know, for, for perhaps some people that don't want to get into the detail and don't have the same need for cognition, the same personality, um, like different, different strokes for different folks. Right. Um, but, but for me, I don't like to think of anything outside. Like I'd like to use that, that framework where everything that we, that exists, exists within, uh, nature and um do you mind if i jump in for a second no absolutely go ahead and mark Uh, hasn't gone yet go mark i actually haven't gone yet right i wanted to like steer it back i mean i I, we were going in a couple of different directions which is fine i was just i guess when we when when i raised the topic i was thinking more specifically about the paranormal and i kind of knew that at the same time it was going to cross into this epistemological territory and into the supernatural and into probably touch on religion. Um, but I was thinking specifically of, I guess, like what, what we as, as modern peoples think of, and again, the term hasn't been around that long, uh, paranormal, what was it? 1920s, you said, Harrison, I believe. Yeah. Well, you know, okay. So like my opinion on it, I think it's all a bunch of bullshit, frankly. Case closed. All right, guys. Well, thanks a lot. No, for coming I'm, out. I'm, I'm, okay, that's, <laughs> that's no, no. Okay, okay. Wait, no. Okay, so no, I really have been giving it some thought. And so the thing, that, okay. So have you guys ever heard? Has anyone here ever heard of duck trees? Duck, like duck trees. Is it like no. quack quack and leaves? Duck duck trees. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you had these medieval maps, you know, starting I think around the the 12th century where they would, you know, the map makers would demarcate the locations of where ducks would seasonally appear for no apparent reason to them, right? And because the map makers were in this particular bubble of time space, they lacked the tools to observe and report on the migratory habits of ducks and geese and other birds. And, and, and they also, I think, lacked the imagination to say, hey, maybe they just all go away sometimes because it's good for them to do that. And they can, you know. Uh, so they lack both, uh, or at least the people with the skill and the authority to make maps in those time, in those in that time space bubble, lack those tools and those insights. And so they came up with paranormal concepts like trees that literally literally grew ducks to fill in the blanks, right? Or I think there was even something like a goose barnacle, I believe, was another was another explanation. Uh, I, and I, I'm sure that, and I'm sure even back then that not everybody believed that. 
and, and I'm also pretty sure that you probably had like duck tree X-Files experts running around, you know, claiming to know like who, how to spot the best ones, you know, like they probably, there's probably a grift associated with it as well, right? But once enough people could see and communicate the migration patterns, the concept of the duck tree went away and it was replaced with the scientific language of uh, let's call it observable causality. And so the paranormal phenomenon was the sudden appearance of the birds, not the existence of the duck trees. You follow me? Like, in other words, it's sort of like the, 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 those who would be the paranormal, paranormal, paranormal investigators back then would be looking for the causal relationship, right? Um, they would be the debunkers, the skeptics on this. Uh, and if we apply that to modern paranormal investigations, I think you see the same thing, you know, but the investigators are, are trying to look for the migratory patterns, not the trees, uh, or at least that's what they claim to be doing. They, they say, you know, we're scientists who are looking for logical explanations for things that are real, but can't yet be explained. And like to touch on what Grant, actually, you've all kind of like touched on this, because I think that really is the core definition of paranormal. Things that we can't currently explain, but we somehow know we will eventually be able to. Now, there's some contradictions inherent in that, right? There's a lot of problems with that. You know, you take words like paranormal or supernatural, and they're similar, but they're not exactly the same. You know, we take paranormal to mean something like real phenomenon that isn't currently explained, but which can be possibly explained at some future date. Whereas supernatural, we think of as something that is inherently inexplicable, and it always will be. And that's a huge jump. That's a big leap from one to the other, if you really think about mm. it. And there's a lot of hubris involved in both. There's there contradictions involved in both. They're slightly different. But if we take those words and we put them under a microscope, they, they don't make a whole lot of sense. You know, with, with supernatural, the problem is, as everyone's touched on, defining what nature is to begin with. You know, John talked about it as well. People use it in different ways, but I think most modern scientists use it to mean the ultimate reality, the full set of rules and causal chains that make up everything, including everything we can't see. So when we say supernatural in that context, it's meaningless because nothing can logically exist outside of the full set. You know, if we, if we look at paranormal, we have a different sort of problem in that, you know, we can't, we can't know what we can or can't know ever, right? Forever is a long time. <laughs> you know, it's basically a contradiction. We say this phenomenon is possible to prove and explain at some future point in time, but this one isn't. How can you know what is possible to prove in the future? You know, and to, be, to bring it back around to duck trees for a minute, we could say something like, Hey, that was a real cock up, right? Because duck trees are impossible, right? Except, except, and this is what I was thinking about. Consider this, in some spooky laboratory somewhere, probably in Ukraine, there's a centrifugal device composed of concentric rings of incubation chambers containing duck embryos. Or maybe, or maybe even some kind of lab-grown monstrosity, an organic thing from which those duck eggs bud off of. Let's call it a, a brave new duck tree world, right? So if we look at it that way and we say, no, it's impossible to know what, what can or can't exist, what can or cannot be proven or unproven, I think that, that the difference between supernatural and paranormal evaporates. And then the lens of the supernatural scoots right back over to man. 
you know, due to the unsolvable mystery of why we even have a faculty for imagining and then eventually making duck trees. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and so that could also make him now, could that also make him a paranormal being, meaning the mystery of man could be solved in a laboratory in Ukraine at some point in the future? I'm not so sure about that. I think paranormal is the worst word. I think it has too many contradictions and contradictions in logic. You know, if you recall, the first trap that I built for ChatGPT was based on those contradictions between possible and impossible, between real and unreal, provable, unprovable, et cetera. The dividing line is way more contentious than the the center of the belt, the thick part of the belt curve can, you know, uh, tends to think of. It's It's even possible that line's an illusion. You know, it doesn't even approach the question of how reality's rule, you know, how much of reality's rule set do we actually know? There's a question. Is theoretical physics a paranormal pursuit? Is that a paranormal field? Does the fact that their models fall way outside the bell curve of what even very educated people typically observe about reality factor in in any way? You know, is reality itself some kind of consensual illusion? And, And if so, then any paranormal, quote unquote, activity we see could just be something breaking through that illusion, even just for a moment. And I, and I think there's a kind of a hubris in thinking that we know almost everything, you know, or even that our current science is conically shaped, that we're narrowing it down in any significant way. Uh, anyway, that's, that's, that's what I got so far. Yeah. So like, um, Harrison pointed out near the beginning that this word paranormal uh, was not in use until the 1920s. And something occurred to me, which is that most of like the overwhelming majority of the scientific paradigms that we operate inside right now were designed, were, were developed at or before that period. Most of the stuff that we've been doing since then has been sort of, um, uh, you know, getting a, a few extra decimal places of precision or a little bit more detail, what have you, right? Um, now, if you, if you look at the pre-paranormal period, uh, meaning like the, the, before that word was introduced as a, sort, as a sort of thought-terminating cliche, when you look at the scientific world, like the actual, um, by which I mean like the, the, the sociological world of scientists you had all of this investigation going on into psi phenomena by quite mainstream um investigators uh because you know i mean during the psychical research yeah exactly spiritualism all of these kinds of things right and uh, i think that's even when the term psi came into use um and you know the 19th century like you know during that time it's like when you have electromagnetic fields being discovered and you know all of these sorts of um, like invisible influences and such. And then you have the introduction of this term, paranormal, that uh, sort of says, oh, if it's, it sort of implies um, that if it's outside of the current scientific understanding, it just doesn't exist. It's nonsense. You know, this is a, a fairy tale. And what happens? Scientific progress starts to slow down. And you know, we have, we, there was that study um, in Nature recently where they looked at um, disruptive papers uh, and the, the incidence of disruptive papers over the last. I'm sure everyone's seen that. 
I found it really revealing. I mean, it just drops off a cliff, um, not in like 1920, but sort of, uh, sort of like in 19, 1980s, 1970s, 1980s, you, you stop having disruptive work being done. And, you know, that's going to be, you know, 60 years roughly, but a couple, but a generation after the introduction of this idea of the paranormal as a, a class of phenomenon that you just shouldn't look at. And of course, you know, science during this time, you've got like the skeptics, you know, UFOs, it's all nonsense, sci, it's all nonsense, it doesn't exist, it's all fake. Um, so yeah, I just find that really interesting, right? Uh, yeah, Mark, what you were just saying about sort of the role of the imagination in almost like not just expanding out into what is unknown and making it known, which is sort of the main function of science, which which science like you know presupposes there there is a lot we don't know. Um, and much of what we do know is probably not so. But also the role of the imagination in making real that which is not currently real at some future date, you know, and that 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 in a sense is like the, <clears throat> what technology ultimately is, right? That's the act of creation. Um, and I think there's something really profound there about the function of humanity in the world uh, and, and our relationship with time. And that's something I'm going to have to think about for a lot longer to come to any really interesting conclusions. Uh, sorry about that, John. My mistake. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's something I've been, I've been sort of like playing with in the back of my mind, actually myself for a bit now. Um, but uh, you know, once once you start like thinking about it, it becomes dizzying quite quickly, uh, and you end up with all these paradoxes and such. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's you know, what what is real, you know? Um, you know, it, it, humans flying. Well, if God wanted us to fly, He'd have given us wings, right? Oh, except that humans fly all the time now. Which, if you'd ask someone three hundred years ago, they would have said that's physically impossible. Humans would never fly, right? And yet now we break the sound barrier and go into space. Things like that. Um, yeah. 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 I wanted to um, uh, go back to what Mark you said and, and Grant also. And John, you touched on, on that too. Uh, I think uh, this whole idea, you know, that the supernatural is kind of like this um, realm where we don't have access, you know, it's something that we like close off and, uh, and we put it to the side, you know, and God is mysterious and it's like, you know, all powerful, uh, all good and, and so on, all these the theological things. And I think a crucial uh, point here is a social, sociological and political one in that um, there, there was a huge drive on the part of religious authorities uh, to just suppress, you know, this kind of stuff, let's say like, everyday um occurrences of you know like what they used to call mir miracles or that now you know we might call telepathy or daniel something like you along the lines you experienced uh, stuff like that um because uh yeah it it it, it kind of democratizes um such things right and the the church definitely and the the religious authority they wanted to monopolize that sort of thing right they had their interpretation of the divine, the Bible, you know, it's like an, it's, 
not even like a theological or religious issue, but like a purely political and sociological one in that sense, right? Um, so it's it's important to understand that the 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 battle between like these what we now might call paranormal phenomenon or the exist the acknowledgement of that and uh, and the debunking was actually between the religious authorities and uh, those who were interested in in this, these things um, and uh, you can see that you know that there's a sort of proto science that came to the scene in the Enlightenment. I mean, these guys were all like really deep into the esoteric and paranormal and woo-woo. And I mean, Newton is a is a famous example, but there are like countless others if you if you look into it. Um, because they actually um they thought, oh no, let's investigate this stuff, right? And do it like reasonably. Let's look at it as part of nature, part of reality, and we can try to find out what's going on and 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 that sort of thing. And that's kind of like the the scientific mindset that actually came to be in that context, um, which people often don't know. Uh, but then um, things changed, right? And around the in the 19th century, that was certainly a key moment. So it's interesting that the paranormal word, the word paranormal came up in, in the 19th century as well, because there was a gradual shift uh, from like religious authorities uh, uh, to the scientific authorities, right? And, and it's the same kind of... Um, political and sociological conflict that's going on um, that I think we really need to understand before even like talking about, you know, whether this stuff is real, what of it is real and so on. Um, it's just a fact that the materialist worldview gives the scientific authorities power, right? Because it makes them the last um, judges of what is real, you know, what can be real, what can't. Uh, and they're like the highest authority in terms of knowledge and it's it's partly really like a um a political issue i think and so we see that conflict again playing out between science and uh some of these ideas right so it is certainly a factor because you would think uh john you gave the examples in the beginning um like uh there are so many things that people thought were like crazy and then turned out to be like uh, totally scientific or vice versa and so why is there such a um, let's let's take the example of tele like telepathy right which you would think it's not like you don't have to accept jesus you know suddenly uh, you know, just because you you accept like uh, that there's there might be something going on so there shouldn't be such a controversy right um because i mean we all experience this stuff you think of, of someone and then you get a call and and that sort of thing I mean, maybe it's coincidence, okay, but I mean, it's just things you would think, let's investigate them, and it's no big deal, right? Um, but it is a huge deal, and I just wanted to make that point, because I think it's really important, um, this kind of political, sociological point, um, that there is a, a, a there are power interests here, um, and they used to be more like between the religious authorities and those renegade, you know, investigators, and these days is more like between the scientific establishment, not even scientists themselves, but like the official science, let's say, um, the science TM, uh, and uh, some of these uh, investigators um, who try to figure out, you know, what's what's going on. Uh, because I totally agree uh, with what most of you, I think, have uh, have said that the it is really no 
it does us no, no good to separate the natural from the supernatural and just pretend the one thing is just totally chaos and we don't or it's we can't know anything about it and it's just a totally different thing and then there's our little reality and then you know there's there's the priest or calvin's uh god or what whatever you know that's kind of like uh bring it together yes yeah, so i don't think that's a good path yeah all right um i want to tie together some of the things that have come up over the last almost an hour first I'll, so i'll start with something i think john said um that you don't need to understand something in order to use it. And I want to tie this into what Grant brought up about placebos and nocebos. Because we don't, as far as I know, no one understands why exactly the placebo effect works. It's something that we just, that uh, like researchers and statisticians just accept is a, a brute fact. Okay, we need to take into account the placebo effect. So you basically accept it from the outset, and then you you base your study and you base your results based on that. Okay, well, we've got an effect above and beyond the placebo effect or the nocebo effect, but we do really don't understand how exactly it works, which opens up uh, a, a further research opportunity for what are the what are the conditions under which the, no, the placebo and nocebo effects can be increased and decreased. Now, I'm sure there are some studies on that, at least I'd assume that there would be, I don't know for sure. But all of this, I'd, I'd tie into something that, okay, uh, I'm just reading the chat. Grant says there are some studies that have looked at the mechanisms and found some. Okay, cool. Well, maybe maybe we can get into those, I don't know. But um, I want to bring this back to, it's kind of a thread that's run through what a lot of people, what a lot of us have been talking about. And this is something that over on, uh, on Mind Matters, the other podcast I do, that was it was our first show that we did was um, was on this psychologist um, James Carpenter, who is uh, also a parapsychologist, and so he he, he writes papers and and researches you know so called psi phenomena, and he wrote a book called First Sight, um, the subtitle is something like the parapsychology of everyday life, and it is a it it is a it's a tough book to read. It's very, uh, very uh, detailed, complex. You know, it's it's not a it's not a book that you'll just, you know, it's not a trade paperback. I'll put it that way. It's not like a pop psychology book. It's pr pretty pretty dense. But if I could like sum up his idea really simply, it would be like kind of like the the placebo effect. It's something we just kind of accept and we use. But he he would, as an analogy, there he would say that the things that we think about as as paranormal or as parapsychology or as psi or whatever, he, he would argue that all of those things are actually normal in the sense that a version of them is going on all the time and that it forms a, basically a, a foundational aspect of human consciousness, of like being itself. Um, and he, he describes it in such a way very similar to um, Alfred North, North Whitehead's philosophy and and David Ray Griffin, who I mentioned, who bases his work on Whitehead's philosophy. But he hadn't read either of them. He kind of came at this from a completely different angle just by looking at the parapsychological research. So all of the lab studies, you know, starting with the Rhines um, in like the, the 60s, I think, on ESP and PK in a lab setting. And so just by looking at all those, all those studies, he came to this 
he came to this kind of theory about perception, not only perception, well, perception and action. And the, it takes into account things like, um, it's, well, it's, uh, well, I'll just say, yeah, it takes into account things like the sense of being stared at and the kind of so-called precognitive um, experience that Daniel related about the, you know, the, the guy running the light, uh, running the intersection that what he's what he basically says the way he the way he thinks about it the way he sees it is that consciousness like your consciousness um which takes into account what what we would call like a subconscious so processes that are going on information processing you could say that is going on below the level of conscious awareness that on some level you your mind is receiving information from conceivably the whole universe and this was Whitehead's philosophy that wasn't based on, on parapsychology at all. He was looking at it, he was developing a psych, trying to develop a philosophy based purely on physics. And, and, and because, well, he was a mathematician, he was into like relativity and into getting into quantum theory at the time. So he wanted to make a, a theory of, well, a philosophical theory, a, a speculative metaphysics that took into account all of the advances of science at the time. And he, he came to the conclusion that, oh, well, any given system, any given like organism or being, uh, which could include a particle or, a, or an atom, is receiving information from all other, all other particles in the universe about state, about position, um, you know, position in space time, and that all of that information gets filtered on an unconscious level, gets filtered in some kind of, some kind of cognitive or precognitive way. And so James Carpenter is saying the same thing. We're constantly getting information about threats in our environment that aren't necessarily sens sensorily transmitted, but there are certain conditions under which they rise to the level of conscious awareness. And so the paranormal experiences um, of the of the more psychological sort. So this would this would be like examples of telepathy or or PK or so like sending or receiving information or thoughts that there are conditions under which those happens. And those are the ones that we call the paranormal events, but that information transfer is happening, um, is happening at all times. Um, it is. So we, we're constantly getting the sense of, well, 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 he's basically saying that's how uh, the sense of being stared at might be, might, might work is that on some level, there is a, an informational transfer and that you're aware of that threat, that potential threat. And that in certain situations, in certain contexts, it might be like the psychological state that you're in. And this, this also comes out from the, from the research. There are certain conditions under which these phenomena are more likely to take place, more likely to be clear, which one of which includes like, you know, you could, uh, well, there's a lot, but kind of like a calm, restful, aware, restfully aware state. And that when they rise to the level of consciousness, that's when you have this weird event, but that the underlying processes are going on, going on all the time. You know, I, I could ramble about that for a long time, but I won't. So I'll end it there. Mark, you should go. You've had your hand up for a while. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Um, I was really glad you brought up Dan's story there because I'm going to like shit all over it here in a second. <laughs> I wanted to first uh, bring up this really useful concept in epistemology or just kind of how we think about things in general is the idea between um, tacit knowledge and uh, communicable knowledge or you know things like that, like you know explicit knowledge. So like the idea with explicit knowledge is I can tell you something and you'll know it. So it's like, hey, if you're coming to my house, you're starting here, here's the turns you take, and then you can get to my house just about as well as I can, right? So I can I can effectively transfer this. Tacit knowledge is all the stuff that we know but we can't express, right? 
So like, I'd have a really hard time explaining like what my mom looks like such that you'd be able to recognize her in the store if you bumped into her, right? But I know what my mom looks like, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, I sound like I don't if I'm telling you like, oh, she's like short, she's got red hair. You're like, have you met this woman? Like, well, yeah, but you know, but that that kind of thing. And a lot of what we know is tacit, you know, like how do you catch a baseball? How do you walk? How do you lift your arm? You know, it's like, we know it because we can do it. Clearly we're doing something. You know, we can do it reliably, but we don't always know it. And this is important because when I think of uh, Dan's experience, you know, say, I think someone's going to run this red light, right? There's actually a lot of situations like that where people rely really heavily on tacit knowledge of things that they know, but they can't express. And that ties into the fact that your senses are pulling in tons of information that your brain isn't consciously processing, right? So... When you think about, you know, you drive home from work, you don't pay any attention to the buildings, you don't pay any attention to the cars and the highway, yet you manage to get home without running into anybody, unless you're damned sometimes. But, you know, in general, 90% of the time you're making it home, but you'd be hard pressed to say, oh, yeah, did you see that cool red car? Like, what? You know, like, what, what song was playing on the radio? Right? You, you miss all of this stuff. But your subconscious, some part of your brain is processing it, making sure you don't run into vehicles, make sure you make the right turn, that kind of thing, right? So you put that together and you get these weird situations. Two of my favorite examples. One, there's a rock, paper, scissors world championships, right? That's sink in for just a second. <laughs> and now consider the fact that the same people tend to win every year. So there's actually people who are world champion rock, paper, scissors competitions who are consistently victorious. It's not just, oh, I got lucky this year again. It's like there's like a top five and these guys are freakishly good at it, right? And when they get interviewed and they say, wow, you know, what did you do? And they'll just sit there and go, you know, I don't know. He just, he really looked like he was going to throw rock on that last match. And it's freaky. But nobody knows how they're doing this, but something's going on where they can play all sorts of different people and consistently win. So some of that might be, you might say, telepathy, or maybe they're really good at, there's a lot of tells, and if you play enough, you kind of get some planted in your brain where you no longer have to think of it, much like when you're driving, right? Like new drivers are terrifying because they're looking at everything all the time. And you're like, dude, just calm down, man. Like, just step out of it and you can do it. But the other example of that is um, sexing chicks, which isn't as fun as it sounds, because what it is, you get these little chickens, right? You little baby chickens, they all look the same, they're like a little ball fluff, but you need to know pretty quick whether it's a boy or a girl so that you can sell them appropriately. You sell a farmer 10 roosters and he's gonna be really unhappy with you in a few weeks. And in Japan, they have a neat way of training people to do that. By neat, I mean slightly abusive, but it's kind of cool, right? They basically, they give somebody a box of chicks and an old, you know, expert sitting there with a Bakken or something in his hand. The student picks up one, goes, uh, boy? Yeah. And he gets smacked if he's wrong. Goes, no. Okay. And he puts him back, gets another one. Girl? Yeah. No. And this repeats until he gets it right. And the weird thing is they start getting it right. So again, it's like, now maybe the chick's telepathic, right? You know, Maybe you could just identify chicks there. I could see that. <laughs> a lot of good applications in the modern day. But, you know, he's looking at something that looks just like one other ball of fluff. 
but there's something going on that people can't pick up on. Like eventually they get really good at saying, no, no, this is a boy. This is a girl. This is a boy. This is a girl. Another girl. And that's it. They can't tell it. They can't explain it. And it's just taught by saying, you're going to do this over and over and over again until you figure it out. You're not going to figure it out explicitly, but you're going to be able to do it. Um, now, this is amusing because it's kind of how you do AI research. But this is, or I should say AI training. But in general, there's a lot of things that humans do that do that. So if I was looking at Dan, he's saying someone's going to run this red light. Maybe out of the corner of his eye, he's getting some sense that there's, I saw some lights over there flash. And they went, they moved by a lot faster than I thought. His brain the whole time is spinning in the background, coming up with all this information and processing it. And all of a sudden it throws up a card. Oh, watch out. Something, something bad's going to happen that's out of the ordinary. You know, and you know, you process that. And that's the thing. You always remember that kind of stuff when it works. We tend to get lots of things like um, like when my cat died you know, a number of years ago, I would still see him every once in a while out of the corner of my eye where I expected him to be. And then I look and go, oh, yeah, right. He's dead. He's not going to be on my chair sleeping on my keyboard. Of course he's not. He's dead. But my brain every once in a while would fill in that little gap of saying, hey, there's usually, I'm not really looking, but usually there's a cat there. I'm just going to draw it in on the margins. Right. And so all those little things are going on. And so I think that's one of the problems when it comes to studying these things and why it should be studied and really carefully kept track of. Because a lot of the things that we aren't aware we're doing, we start ascribing all of these more interesting than just, oh, I guess my brain was figuring this out while I wasn't really paying attention uh, responses to. But humans come up with a ton of really incredible stuff we do by what you might say scientific standards. Tons of things we're really good at doing that's almost impossible to replicate because we can't explain why we're doing it. And so it just comes out really well. Or like Grant was saying um, at the very beginning of our conversation before we started recording about being, you know, being able to look at people and go, that guy's going to do well in this physical fitness event, but this guy's not going to do so well, you know, by just having been around it so much. You know, a lot of times scientists especially make the mistake of saying everything that's not what I do is really simple and non-complicated. Let me just, I can just solve this for everybody. Not realizing that every field of endeavor has incredibly dense uh, amounts of information to know to be able to really uh get a good grip for how just you know just detailed and uh how much there is to actually know sorry i'll mm -hmm. stop talking i'm starting to ramble a little bit so i sorry, who had it the first? First. i think it was angel looking over you dan <laughs> and I'll, i think I'll, I'll was cut a... in. yeah i'll cut okay. in just uh because what i got's real quick just I think this is one of the important reasons the scientific process exists is to control bias because of this exact process, right? Like how, how we take all of this implicit knowledge and use it to navigate our environment. So much of it's hidden and so much of it can influence uh, what we expect to happen. And that can influence the way that we take measurements and all this stuff in ways that we just really can't control with why it's so important to do, you know, if you're trying to deliberately figure something out, you know, double blind, uh, you know, with a, a good placebo control, you know, to, to isolate this stuff and figure out how stuff actually works because the human component and the way that we process knowledge um, is, is very effective and it works really well in a lot of ways in terms of, uh, 
uh, enhancing survival and survival fitness, especially in the evolutionary environment that we we all grew up in. But um, that doesn't necessarily correspond to the way things are actually working. And that's why we have the scientific process to, con to control this bias that's always right there under the surface. Um, and unfortunately, people are really good at applying those standards to other people's ideas and stuff that they disagree with, but they don't like to do it to themselves. And so we get this group think, and that's probably a lot of, of what we're dealing with, with mm -hmm. replication crisis and so on. But I just wanted to throw that out there because it popped into my head. Um, so Yeah, I, maybe I, I can make two quick points about that. Um, so first, uh, to, uh, I have read some of the research that came out of the, you know, like the paranormal research things and the, with telepathy experiments and that sort of thing. And uh, what I can tell, I mean, if uh, uh, if they are honest, you know, um, then m many of them really have gone way, way uh, out of their way uh, to like do like really good experiments that control for like everything under the sun and like make it really impossible you know to for like straightforward explanations to exist you know because they had been criticized so much so they refined the i mean they, they're probably among the best um experiments you know from a scientific methodology standpoint because they they are under such heavy criticism so i just want to say that so I, I find that really interesting but uh to step back a little bit about the, the point you made, Grant and and uh, uh, Eric, about the you know this um, unconscious knowledge basically that you have and, and these things and or like the the evolved um, like superpowers that we kind of have right um, that we're unconscious of. Um, so I think it's it's kind of interesting because that's a point where where I think these these paranormal phenomena and like more like uh scientific framing you know they kind of can converge um in a sense um and you for example ian mcgilchrist in his book um he gives the the matter with things he gives this example of this horse guy right um who is like an expert on on horse racing and uh and he's like he makes tons of money with predictions you know and he's just the guy and he has like decades of experience horse breeding and whatever you know and he's the horse guy and uh and whenever they ask him like before race uh, uh so yeah well what's your tip you know who's gonna win and as soon as he starts thinking about it and going off in his head you know about like oh yeah i, I remember this horse you know last season was the, the so and so and like when he tries to consciously use all his vast knowledge uh, it it was never like better than chance uh, his predictions, but when he was like just like you know shooting from his hips like oh yeah that that guy is gonna win you know he was just like incredibly accurate in his in his uh, predictions, and I mean for all intents and purposes that's that's magic right I mean uh, it's crazy um, but you can still kind of explain it maybe you know in in with, that he just has so much experience that when he relies on that intuition that he kind of unconsciously build up uh, that he can make these kinds of predictions, right? It's, it's not what I, my point is. It's 
sometimes it might not be mutually exclusive, right? Sometimes these more like natural explanations or this blink moment kind of thing, um, the, these things um, you can make is let's say non-paranormal uh, case, and yet they look like like you know prophecy basically, right? So uh, so it's interesting that. Um, uh, that there is a conf conflation point, let's say, uh, where, and, and that's maybe how it works in real life a lot of the time, right? That uh, the story that Harrison told um, about uh, Carpenter and his, uh, his ideas that were kind of connected to the, you know, the, the quantum field or whatever, and, and that's where we get the information from. Um, uh, that's... That's just all like different ways, perhaps, at seeing the at looking at the same thing, and and you might make an evolutionary case, uh, whatever you know. But uh, yeah, it can come together, kind of. That's all I'm saying. I'd like Dan to go next because I haven't heard from you in a while, in a while, brother. So why don't you um, chime in and then and then maybe kick it to me because I want to talk about your experience as well thing um yeah well i i guess what you know doc's explanation is possible i, I don't know you know the, the particular way that in the intersection in question that i was approaching it my visibility from the direction the car came from was it was blocked by you know buildings it's, it's possible you know but I, I have no idea at the end of the day how it worked on that occasion it maybe hasn't worked on other occasions it's just uh but I mean, it's, it's certainly possible that there's you know natural explanation like that, um, and I guess that goes back to just the whole nature versus paranormal distinction that you know it may not always be warranted, and just in terms of uh, you know it's like what you guys mentioned that you're just having an epistemic humility about you know not a priori rejecting certain forms of knowledge or experiences or events because they don't fit the you know established mental model post enlightenment that you know uh, I, I mean it, and I, I guess it goes to you know the whole top down versus bottom up kind of uh, system I don't know or, or, or exploration of knowledge or, or understanding of the world um, where I guess if the enlightenment was a reaction against, you know, the sort of theological hierarchy that had, this is the acceptable way of exploring the world and, you know, formulating, you know, a, a system of knowledge about it. And that, you know, so they'd gotten so narrowed. And so, you know, so many things were fenced off from what could be known or discussed or investigated that it left so much out and eventually people realize you know hey there's these you know uh things that don't that, that, that contradict what you claim to be you know established truth and uh you know they went about it with the empirical you know scientific method uh, but then in our own time i mean it seems like maybe this is part of a larger theme with historical cycles that you know that has developed its own bureaucracy that has created its own almost you know religious style you know systemization of knowledge that okay here's what's acceptable here's 
what we can reject. And, you know, you, you have to come at it from within their, I don't know what you call it, you know, the, the rules that they've set down for this is how we can investigate, this is how we can discuss. And if you don't approach it through that way, you're a conspiracy theorist or you're, you know, a, a, a quack or you're not following the science or whatever the, the, the case might be. And it, it seems like with these type of investigations, the most interesting stuff is, is what happens on the frontiers. I mean, if you look at, I don't know, uh, systems of knowledge or understanding like a, a civilization or a, or a society where, you know, it's expanding outwards and there's what they think they've established kind of like this defined hierarchy, this defined order in the center of the empire. And then on the periphery, you know, on the frontiers is where all the exciting, you know, the, the, the fighting happens, the, you know, the, the things change constantly. This is less settled, you know, certain types of personality types thrive in one place or the other, you know, and, and it seems like in our society it's gotten in the same way that the global homo empire in terms of society, you know, it, it's, it's, there's something similar or analogous to that in terms of our system of knowledge that in the center of it is so fixed and, you know, and, and hierarchical and closed off and it, that it just, it's falling under its own weight. And it, the, it's, it's too disconnected from the frontiers where real discovery can take place. Uh, there's a couple of things with the, Harrison, you had had a, some podcasts with Rolo Slavsky and the, about spirituality that were really interesting. And he, I think it was him or maybe it was you, uh, but talked about, I guess, a, kind of like an empirical method of testing out different spiritual practices and seeing, oh, this works. I'm not sure why it works. We're not sure how the practice itself fits in with the, the you know, the theology or the religious, you know, uh, underpinning of it but whatever this practice is it does seem to work and there seems to be you know some real value in that that for whatever reason are it's, it's interesting to note how these subjects are approached you know in our current i guess academic heavy uh in, in environment where you know you're so you know you can approach it in, in in a published paper with a bunch of footnotes and you know citing previous people but in terms of just exploring you're not encouraged to do that you know to explore the way that you and rollo were discussing in those in those podcasts um yeah anyway i'll kick it back to you mark for thank you uh okay so you know like a lot was said there obviously like i was i was when Harrison was talking, I had a bunch of questions. And then when Eric was talking, I had a bunch of questions. And now I have a bunch of new questions. So, um, But to start with Harrison, I think that when we're talking about, you know, phenomenon, like, like uh, I think we were talking about um, uh, something like telepathy or uh, things, uh, things, in other words, that like act outside of the normal mechanisms that we, you know, uh, telekinesis. Um, these are extensions of power, right? And even what Eric, what Doc was talking about were extensions of power. Like even when he's, when he's talking, when he's describing Dan's um, um, premonition in the car, uh, he describes it in terms of mechanism that's happening that, again, is unprovable. Just as 
just as consciousness is unprovable, so is the subconscious and so is the unconscious. As a matter of fact, I'd say the unconscious mind is the least provable of all. Like the idea of brain as mechanism that tricks uh, Dan in, or, 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 or Eric or me into, um, uh, uh, or that, the, that not tricks, but like that, that informs without informing. In other words, the idea, I think even John has talked about the idea, well, cells must think as well. And it's just sort of like, well, okay, you know, I, I kind of know what he means. But in another sense, I don't know what he means. Because ultimately, Dan, uh, he experienced something that is not exactly explicable through sensory apparatus, right? But I think that's also because we typically, like when we talk about reality, reality is a manifold, right? It's a closed circle. And it's a closed circle that contains closed circles. We are all manifolds. Uh, uh, you know, within our skin, so is a squirrel, so is a duck. You know, we 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 tend to think of that and say, like, okay, well, these are the limits of our powers, right? Our, our everything romans at our skin, right? Because anything that nothing can escape that, nothing can escape the envelope of our physical being. Um, and maybe that's true, and maybe it's not. But like the uh, the notion that somehow, you know, that that if these powers exist, if telekinesis exists, right, the force, whatever, it's sort of like, a, that's a form of expansion of power. And Doc, as Doc said, it, it, he was saying that it's just kind of like, well, a new driver, a new driver is just a bundle of nerves, right? And, and they're going to get in a crash. I got in a crash when I was a new driver. Like, I remember being that bundle of nerves. Um, and then as you gain experience, you learn to relax and then you can maybe all of these, uh, the information that is, you know, that is constantly recycling us and rejuvenating us and that we're constantly reincorporating into our being. As we gain experience and calm down, we become more powerful. What's the opposite of that? And I, and I, and I wrote a little bit about hypnosis recently. I don't know if any of you guys read it. Um, but I was talking about the Stanford scale and the Stanford scale basically says that 25% of the population is unhypnotizable, right? They just, don't, they don't know why they don't have the mechanism. As John was saying before, sometimes you can have a field and it's, it's called pseudoscience. It is a pseudoscience. Hypnotism doesn't mean it's fake. It just means that you can have a set of reproducible results that you don't have a very good mechanical explanation for you know when i went to uh, in my 20s when i went to a, a therapeutic hypnosis to try to help me stop smoking like that's that's the that's the result that i got he said i'm sorry this isn't going to work for you you're not in the group you know and it's just sort of like um but for people the 75 percent of the population that is inducible it's sort of like it says like well wait a minute like if we can be, if if there's such a thing as Luke said, like as like you know superpowers that like you can gain in some way or in some way um, train yourself in or maybe in some way be gifted with, like it's sort of like I think that the opposite would also be true. In other words, if there are paranormal powers, there are probably paranormal weaknesses, um, and that and that people can exploit to their benefit. You know that that you can have authority structures that say. 
ah, I, here's this person that is like, you know, that is distracted by so many things. They're new. They're, they're not a good driver yet. And so like in that state of, of, um, of fear or panic or um, uh, just, you know, just, just amateur, amateur experience, like that they can exploit those things. And I think that that may also be an aspect of paranormal. That may be an aspect of paranormal where it's just kind of like, okay, the CIA says, hey, yeah, that's right. You know, MK Ultra existed, but whatever. We checked into it and uh, it didn't work. It's like, do you believe the CIA? Go ahead. Believe them. But I suggest that like maybe it's, you know, there's a little bit more to it than, than, than that. And that I think that people with a lot of authority and money and guns know that. And that we should be careful to suggest that our agency ends in any specific place, whether it's at the, you know, whether it's inside of our, our, our left or right uh, brains or whether it's at the tips of our fingers, we should be careful and say like, now, wait a minute, who would profit most from us believing that those limitations not only exist, but are just completely impossible to to uh, to extend ourselves beyond. Yeah, I want to jump in and actually, in a lot of ways, double down on what Mark said, but at the same time, uh, kind of feel like I ought to defend the Enlightenment a little bit here. <laughs> I think uh, I absolutely agree that science lately lately being, you know, whatever, 80 years or whatever. But in general, you know, modern science as it's done today has become extremely top-down. Um, I think there's two parts to that, though, and neither one is directly blamable on the Enlightenment per se, but rather how we do things as a species. Um, so on the one hand, I think every science becomes eventually very top-down in the sense that there's a general idea that, okay, these guys know how to do stuff. They've figured it out. There's very little room for new people to come in and make lots of changes. And so this is how you do it now. And so you learn to do science by doing what they do. So getting back to that earlier example, we were talking about the steam engine, you know, in the early days, everybody was coming up with little features, little, little tweaks from the steam engine to make it a little bit better here, a little bit better here. And it seemed like, you know, wide open frontiers. But then after a while, it kind of settled down to the point where it's like, actually, you know, this is this is pretty good. Like we've got this thing 80 percent of where it's going to go. And in the past, you know, 150 years, there hasn't been many real improvements on the steam engine. You know, progress kind of slowed down. We got pretty close to the edge of the curve of where it could go. And then, you know, if you wanted to learn, if you wanted to get better at steam engines, you had to go talk to somebody who was already good at it, not fiddle around in your shed and try to make it work. Right. So on the one hand. That's part of the natural progress of science. On the other hand, though, we've managed to really uh, screw the scientific pooch in a lot of ways by virtue of how we fund science, where it's basically you write up a uh, you know a grant proposal, you send it off to somebody, some bureaucrat, and they look at it and go, yeah, this sounds legit or not. And that's basically your career. And this is, you know, especially in some of the more expensive sciences, this becomes a big deal. Um, I know John's probably seen this too when we see like, you know, 
late 90s, early 2000s, it was a joke that every single paper, uh, especially grant proposal, had to have a section that was implications for climate change, right? Didn't matter if you were like, you know, studying what people's chromosomes do if you bombard them with x-rays, it's, you know, implications for climate change. Now it's all implications for DEI and inequality, things like that. It's a it's become a very, very politicized process, which means that it's going to be very, very top down. And none of this is as a result of the enlightenment so much as just this is what happens to science after a while, especially if being a scientist depends on other people saying, yeah, this guy's a scientist. It becomes extremely incestuous. And so if you want to have a career, you have to go beg these people and they only want to hear the view backing up their own research. And so I think we want to be a little bit careful about that because just as you know, Mark was saying about we have to think about where the money is going. One, it's coming from you know, the NIH, uh, DARPA, and all those folks who have a huge amount of input on who gets funding and thus who gets to have a scientific career. But it's also coming from people on the other side who want to convince you that crystals will heal your cancer. If only you give them another $10,000, this time it'll totally work and you'll be fine. You know, there's just as many snake oil salesmen on both sides of that respectability fence. And so, you know, you got to be Better be very careful, and just because one group is opposed to the other group doesn't make them the good guys, right? Plenty of bad guys to go around. Yeah, John, you should go, and then maybe we should uh, do some final remarks. Yeah, I was gonna. I was just gonna give my final remarks, actually, um, and I'm gonna actually uh, agree with uh, pretty much everything Eric just said, um, which doesn't happen very often. Uh, so, like. Yeah, I don't think the Enlightenment is the problem here. You know, that was hundreds of years ago. And look what happened, you know, between the Enlightenment and, you know, like 1920, right? I mean, like a lot of very good, very powerful things were unlocked during that period. Um, it is, I think, mostly, like Eric said, the funding model. It's this extremely bureaucratic form of organization that sort of forces scientists to uh, sort of predetermine what their conclusions are going to be and, you know, very much color inside the lines and not do anything to upset the apple carts, not uh, look into things that are going to, going to trouble the careers of older scientists, things like that. Um, it, it turns into a, a parlor game in a lot of ways um, rather than a genuine search for the truth. I think, however, that, we're watching that that iceberg break apart um, right now uh, with all of the structural problems in academia. Um, a lot of people just leaving, either getting driven out or just getting frustrated or, uh, you know, just unable to find a position because the universities are gradually going bankrupt because students don't even want to go there anymore. Um, and then you have all of these intelligent people who are going out and uh they're they're free right and what what's that going to lead to well i think you're going to find a lot more um sort of daring research into topics like psi like uaps like things like that um partly because 
they don't have to color inside the lines anymore. They don't need to be so respectable, partly because that kind of thing is just very interesting to the average person out there. One a, a point that Luke made in his piece in the paranormal was that a belief in the paranormal is like a solid majority of the population. People are fascinated by the topic, but it's incredibly difficult to get funding for it. Well, how are scientists going to be funding their research in the next, you know, uh, coming coming period? I think crowdfunding is going to be a big part of it. Well, how do you crowdfund things? You, you, well, you have to find things to work on that are interesting to a large number of people. What's interesting to a large number of people? Does telepathy work? If so, how do we make it work? Are UAPs real? Okay, well, how do we how do how do we study that more systematically? And you know, you've got people like uh, Avi Loeb, for instance, who's a, an entirely conventional astrophysicist uh, at Harvard or Yale, one of the Ivies. I, I always forget. Um, they're all kind of the same to me. Anyhow, he, I mean, he's doing, uh, um, uh, going on an expedition in a couple of months to go and look for pieces of a UFO that he th think might have might have fallen in uh, off the coast of uh, Indonesia or something. Um, so yeah, you have this kind of thing going on. Um, I also just wanted to remark that I, I suspect some of our listeners or watchers, depending on which platform they're, they're they're consuming this content on. Might be a little disappointed because they were probably hoping that we would uh, be talking about, uh, you know, UFO stories and uh, our own. Uh, we had a little bit of our own. Uh, you know, Daniel shared his his, but you know, we didn't really go into. Um, you know, Mark, for instance, had a, uh, a, a still unfinished series of essays, which is quite interesting, talking about his own brush with something quite dark. Um, but by and large, we kind of talked about epistemology and ontology and all of these kinds of highfalutin uh, philosophical concepts, um, almost as though as, as moderns so deeply steeped in this materialist paradigm, even those of us who kind of push back against it feel the need to sp spill an inordinate amount of ink, sort of talking ourselves into being able to talk about it instead of just talking about it. You know, uh, so I'm, I'm going to I'm going to finish off there. Um, and uh, it, I think this is a really interesting discussion uh, and maybe something that a uh, topic that we might want to return to uh, later on. OK, well, since I was brought up, I'll go next. Uh, I, I you know, I, I apologize. I didn't I didn't I didn't think of it as the forum for something like that. Um, obviously, I've had some experiences written about them. Uh, um, talking about them is something quite different, you know, it's, uh, first of all, like, if anyone's, if anyone knows what John's talking about, like, like, uh, yes, obviously, I've had multiple experiences. Um, and as I say, in my writing, it's, it's sort of like something that I'm very careful about. I think you need to be careful about that. I think that you always have to be on on guard. On, on your defense against um, the possibility that you've been in some way, um, well, not hallucinating, but like, for instance, like I, I, I talked with my wife about this and, and we agreed. I said, like, look, I said, you know, I've seen a bunch of things, but I'm only going to talk about the things that I've seen that other people have seen at the same time. That's my line. My line is if I've only experienced it, um, and this is this is this is in line with what Doc was talking about. It's like it, it's almost in line with like the athletes that are like you know that are that are beating their chests and like uh, saying that like hey, the gods have favored me. 
Um, because look what happened. Um, my experiences are different than that. And, and, and so maybe we can revisit it at some point, but I think I'm better at writing about it than I am speaking about it. And also, you know, because obviously you could be a lot more careful about what you write about than what you speak about. Um, and as far as paranormal, supernatural, I don't know, um, things that absolutely laid, you know, were, were outside of uh, the typical, again, you know, if we're looking for the mean experience of reality or something where um, um, people could look at it and say, ah, that's exactly, here's what happened. You know what I mean? Like things where you could look at it and say, I can't just quite say, here's what happened. Like it's, it's, it's strange enough that I, that I need to look into it more than that. Then as a matter of fact, um, I would say that that's the line. In, if you're going to pursue an investigation into something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Um, if you're going to pursue an investigation into something weird that you can't quite explain, it, it's got to be done with humility. And it's got to be done, I think, again, in the right, the right way, the right order of things is first look for what you can explain with what you already know, the tools that you already have, the data that's already been compiled. Um, uh, and, 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 and then only when you press beyond those, then you can begin to say, hey, I don't quite understand this. There might be a different property of reality even that I don't understand or a different substrate of it, um, a different force that's working upon things. You know, all of scientific... Um, development has been about what essentially uncovering invisible forces, seeing phenomenon uh, that we could not see before, looking, observing reality at smaller or even more distant layers than we could before. And so, like, there's a hubris, and it's, and I think it's a hubris that's in every generation, even during the duck tree generations. There is a hubris that like what we can currently see is all that there is. And it's the hubris of, like it's the norm, you know, like the NPC hubris, right? Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm for current thing because current thing, uh, there's, a, there's a lack of humility and at the same time, a lack of imagination and that's the top of the curve. And so like, you know, to, to pretend that like, um, for instance, all, you know, um, that mechanism, right? Mechanism itself is like the, well, that's uh, emergent mechanism is like the explanation for everything. Well, fine, but that's your religion. If you make a statement like that, you're making essentially a metaphysical claim. You know, part of our problem now is that like we're confusing metaphysical claims with scientific claims and they're different, you know? Um, when, when we sit, you know, it's like, again, like battling um, chat GPT and, and blowing it away every single time, by the way, and I've limited myself on purpose. Um, what I learned was that, like, again, the thinking minds behind inventing things like these, 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 these sort of machines that are supposed to be new oracles or whatever. Um, what I learned is that, like, people are constantly confusing metaphysics with physics. They're constantly, um, they're confusing woo with uh, science. And like, and, and, and so my final statement on that is that we can't 
we have to approach reality as though we really don't know a whole lot about it. Um, and if and, and and again, it's like that doesn't mean we have to like heal ourselves with crystals. It might mean that we have to heal ourselves with crystals. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't looked into it enough, quite frankly. Um, and so yeah, so that's about it. I mean, like I guess it would end on that. I remember I heard a joke one time. I can't remember the comedian. I remember he was like in a room and he says, okay, everybody in the room who believes in uh, telekinesis, raise your hand. And then he says, okay, everybody in the room who, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, I screwed up the joke. Everyone who doesn't believe in telekinesis, raise your hand. And then he says, everyone who does raise my hand, you know? And I think that's almost like a, a good way of looking at it. Like you have to say like, okay, yes, we have to use the tools of investigation that we have. We have to try to prove things by what we know and can commonly see. And then after that, you know, um, it's not so much that all bets are off, but like, you know, we, we if we close the door, we have to, to, to something in particular, we should look inside of ourselves and say, why am I closing the door? Is it because I, I think that, reality is a finished portrait or is it because there's some authority somewhere that wants me to close that door and that's it i think that we do in a dedicated episode on just epistemology i think down the road will be helpful and then um we can we can continue to do stuff on paranormal stuff but then focus on specific phenomenon and i think that that would i we're, we're struggling to wrap it up you know with with such a broad topic but um you know we'll have more time going forward so um luke you got closing thoughts uh just uh, to say that i think it's kind of a good thing that we um uh went into epistemology and philosophy and all that kind of stuff um Mark, I, I get your point, right? Um, but I think, I mean, presuppositions, they change over time, but they cannot change too abruptly. So we kind of need to work with the tools that we have, as you put it. And so in that sense, I think it's uh, it's good to not jump the gun too quickly on these sort of things and just work with what we know and you know the, the ideas we have and work our way out of the the maybe wrong uh, presupposition that we still hold hold on to. So um, yeah, uh, even though it can be frustrating sometimes. Yeah, so I think that's all. Oh, jump Harrison in. or Daniel, anybody want to yeah. jump in? No final thoughts for me. Ah. So I'd say, uh, yeah, whoever wants to go in, just jump in. Dan, why don't you let me go first? Because I, I think I, you might want to respond to what I'm saying. But that was I, good. I was kind of joking about saying I was going to shit all over Dan's story. Because on the one hand, I think the way I would approach a lot of this sort of stuff is there's kind of the kind of two ends of research, right? There's the stuff that we can that we learn about and then we can use. And so we say, oh, I know this is true because it works. I don't have to worry about the theory behind it. But like, I know this steam engine works. I don't know why when I made this tweak, it works better, but hey, I know it works better, right? And then there's the whole realm of theory where it's just theory. Like, you know, you talk about it, but you can't really put it to use. And one reason I wanted to bring up that example and the reason I disappeared here for a second was that there's, um, I don't know if you guys have read it, but 
Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi, the Japanese sword saint who's ridiculously good at killing people. Um, and one of his interesting points in there, really good book, actually, I totally recommend it. It's very short and has a lot of thinky things in it. But one of his interesting points is that he makes this saying, you know, when you're fighting and you're in combat, don't be focused on your opponent. You need to have a wide view. You have to take in everything, step back, don't let yourself become hyper. I'm putting words in his mouth here, but don't let yourself become hyper-focused. Try to take in everything and don't think too hard about any particular bit, um, which is really, really good advice when you're fighting because it's really easy to get hyper-focused and you know that's how you get killed whenever you follow a feint and believe it's real and that sort of thing. What he, but what he's saying, the way I take it at least, and the way I'm applying it with I'm thinking with Dan too, is that you want to cultivate and get used to that idea of I'm taking in lots of information and I'm listening to what, whether it's your subconscious, whatever's going on in the back of your head that's making it work. I'm listening to that. I'm trying to take everything in. I'm not trying to focus too much. And I think, you know, there might be a lot of different mechanisms there, but being aware that there's something going on that's other than just your frontal lobes, you know, grinding through seven or so different things at the same time can be really useful. And that's a good thing to cultivate. And whether or not somebody wants to call it being spiritually open to voices or, you know, not overwhelming your subconscious and letting it spit back information is in some ways irrelevant, you know, just to recognize that there's something going on there that's useful and that, you know, if you can cultivate that and get better at it, it's good. And if what you're doing is allowing you to get better at it, you've done sufficient science in the sense of I'm figuring out how this works and I'm learning and I'm adhering better to the rules of the world. So I think that's one of the big dangers with the woo side of the paranormal type stuff is that they never actually try to get better at using it or demonstrating that they're getting some benefit out of it. It's just woo. You know, there's no actual test. Whereas, you know, I'm real open to a lot of weird stuff like, you know, the placebo effects and things like that, where we look at and go, I don't know why this works, but it totally does. You know, that's legit. And that's something that needs to be looked into. That's all. I wanted to show you. <laughs> Sounds like a good book. Uh, it, I guess with the one thing that and I don't know, I guess this is, this is still on epistemology a little bit, but I think there's some overlap with the, I mean, the way we understand ourselves is in uh, the world and our place in the world. It's like uh, there's something with storytelling. I mean, we just are storytelling creatures. Like that's just from our earliest beginnings i mean that's kind of the way as children too you know you you develop an understanding in this narrative form of this happened this happened you know conscious agents acting and intent and things like that as a narrative arc you know um and you know for whatever the reason is i mean that can lead us astray obviously and it's just like this uh balancing act you know like the um right hemisphere finding the connections less hemisphere the analysis the you know the empirical sort of check on does the story map on to reality uh, or not you know is there an anomaly that the story can't explain but it i guess to, to me it, it it raises just some interesting questions about like what kind of universe is this what kind of creatures are we that this is the way we understand ourselves as stories and symbols. And, you know, at the end of the day, I didn't have to get all mystical with it, but it just, it's interesting that that's the case. And if you look at just a story, if a novel or a 
or whatever and you you can break down the components of you know the characters and different plot devices but there's something that connects all of them some kind of intentionality on the part of the author of the story that i don't know adds a different wrinkle and you know i i'm this point ag- agnostic in terms of what i would say i could know but i feel like there is you know at least some advantage to believing that there is or could be that dynamic going on with our universe some kind of now whatever that looks like is is there a god or is there a collective consciousness or some kind of hive mind that humanity has or whatever but just that you see uh you know like there's a so much that we obviously don't know and there's something that to me there's a reason why certain stories certain symbols just really capture captivate our imaginations in a, a deep way that's like just goes beyond any kind of logic there's certain symbols you know from our ancestral past or whatever that just keep coming up and you know what that means i don't know but just that you have on the one hand the empirical skepticism that uh I don't know if you've read uh, Apology for Raymond Saban by uh, Montaigne. I mean, it, you know, he's a good example of this where it just dissolving the claims that, you know, kind of having this, this profession of ignorance, but at the same time recognizing there's useful ways of applying knowledge that you can make predictions without claiming to have some, you know, grasp on some truth with a capital T. It's, it's like you can go too far in that direction and, and leave out any kind of story that might exist or you can go too far to the other extreme of, of everything's a story and you know you need something to poke a hole in it um, and I don't know I guess it's just there's this weird balancing act that you have to do it seems like to live to fully realize your humanity you know including that aspect that is like the storytelling uh, you know creature and that we are and then from there to say what well, there are these stories if there's some deeper reality here you know it seems to go beyond what we can empirically demonstrate you know and so it doesn't really say much of anything but just raises questions i guess for me thank you daniel Holds us off by saying thank you all so much for another great discussion and uh, look forward to the next one as always uh, on uh, tonic discussions here. Great talking to everybody. Yeah, thanks everybody. Good discussion. Take care. Yeah, this was Watch a, the uh, skis. See you next time. <laughs> this was really good. See you see you guys next week. <laughs>